0: Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 239 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today is part four of a four-part series where I give you a sneak peek into the four parts of the book that I wrote that I'm still finishing up. I've got the rough draft written and I just thought, you know, I'm going to let the listeners in on little sneak peeks of each part of the book. There's four parts And so I did a sneak peek on part one in episode 236, sneak peek on part two in episode 237, sneak peek on part three in episode 238, and today is 239 and we're going to do a sneak peek into part four. Now with the other parts, I had an introduction written and I shared that with you on the podcast, but I'm going to be tweaking all of this. It might not even sound It'll sound very similar to what you're hearing on the podcast, but I am definitely in the revision process of writing the book. And so the book might end up sounding a little bit different. And obviously, I'm just giving you little tiny portions of each part, but I don't have an introduction written for this last part yet. So I'm just going to share with you three of the chapters. They're not going to go in order. I'm going to share with you chapter five or what's chapter 5 right now, chapter 9 and chapter 11. I'm actually not finished writing part 4. I still have, at the time of this recording, I still have a couple of other little chapters that I want to write. But I will share uh, what I've got done of 5, 9, and 11 right now. And here we go. Chapter 5, Flying Free. When it comes to injustice, silence is not a virtue. It is a vice, two times compounded because it contains both indifference to the victims and complicity with the destroyers. In such instances, we have failed to do justice. The call to do justice is the call to be like God. In failing to do justice, we do not look like Christ in this world. In not looking like Christ, we have failed to worship Him. Diane Langberg, Suffering and the Heart of God How Trauma Destroys. And Christ restores. I hate to torment the reader with even one more word about Bethlehem, but they keep showing up in my story like a bad case of acne. In August of 2016, the elders at Bethlehem asked me to come to one of their meetings to discuss my request to withdraw membership. Dear God, have mercy on all the living souls of the planet. I wrote, Thank you, but I will decline. As I've stated before, if anyone has anything to say to me, they can put it in writing and send it in an email. They wrote back that they were sad I felt this way. They held their meeting about me the following month and sent a follow up email expressing that, after careful deliberation, they had decided not to grant my request to withdraw membership. Instead, they told me for the umpteenth time that I needed to reconcile with John and put myself back under their authority for my own good and for the sake of my children. They said they were writing with tears. Can anyone say crocodile? Two months later, they sent me a copy of the letter they intended to publicly read to the congregation at the quarterly meeting. In this public announcement, they wrote, It is not our policy to grant a dismissal of membership to a member who is pursuing a direction that we consider to be sinful. Rather, it is our normal policy to pursue such a member in the process of church discipline. My interpretation? It is not our policy to help a woman escaping abuse, but it is our policy to pursue her with more of the same They asked me to confirm receipt, to which I responded with the following. I did receive the letter today. It appears that what the elders believe God wants and what I believe God wants are at odds. Since I am responsible before God for the life He gave me, I am obligated to obey Him rather than men. You have been grossly deceived, and for that I am sorry. However, I need to stay the course that God has set in front of me. If that means you choose to excommunicate me, so be it. It is a false excommunication that will go unrecognized by God, for I belong to Him, and I will always be part of His church, regardless of whether or not an earthly church organization led by fallible men chooses to treat me otherwise. I believe that the truth will ultimately be revealed and win in the end, and God will be glorified. I trust we can both appreciate and look forward to that day. Then I wrote this in my journal. Every step is like being presented with a trust fall off a cliff. Outcome unknown. But it's either jump or let Pharaoh drag me back to Egypt where I will be given food and shelter in exchange for my voice and wings. They tell us it's a sin to have voices and wings, so they keep us in gilded cages of our own choosing. I could not see this from my cage view, but from my sky view, it's crystal clear. I'm never going back. I'm flying free. I didn't want to just enjoy my own flight, though. I knew there were caged survivors longing to fly, and I wanted them to know I could see and hear them, and I believed them. I wanted to help them see their cage doors were actually wide open. They only stayed because they believed they had no choices, but who taught them this and why? I changed the name of my website from Visionary Womanhood to Flying Free, started writing articles for Christian women about emotional and spiritual abuse, and took classes to become a certified life coach. The summer of 2018, I wrote a book called, Is It Me? Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. This book would be a necessary and healing empathetic witness for thousands of Christian women. I would go on to write a companion workbook, teach classes, coach women in groups, and start a private forum for these women to connect and see one another. I wanted them to know they were not crazy, and they were not alone. At the very end of 2018, the Flying Free podcast was born. It was like God said, Hey, sweet pea. You want to use your voice? Here's a mic. Start talking. So I did. Flying free is still going strong at the time of this writing, opening cages and setting beautiful butterflies free to discover who God created them to be. I spent decades looking for an empathetic witness outside of myself, but the great empathetic witness had been within me all along, I had finally stopped confusing God with controlling religious people, and this cleared the smoke and enabled me to experience God more authentically for who God was. Once I experienced the great empathetic witness, the trauma began to resolve and dissipate, and I was then free to be an empathetic witness for women like me, as well as show them how to be the same for others. Now I know that this is how we change the world, not through power and control, but through empathetic witnessing. Another word for it is love. And another word for love is God. And another word for God is creator. And I hope you're starting to connect the dots. Chapter 9, End of an Era But the bad news is that whatever you use to keep the pain at bay robs you of the flecks and nuggets of gold that feeling grief will give you. A fixation can keep you nicely defined and give you the illusion that your life has not fallen apart. But since your life may indeed have fallen apart, the illusion won't hold up forever. And if you are lucky and brave, you will be willing to bear disillusion. You begin to cry and writhe and yell and then to keep on crying And then, finally, grief ends up giving you the two best things, softness and illumination. Anne Lamott, Traveling Mercies. My family did not invite me to join them in planning my dad's funeral. When I asked Marcy if I could help, she waved her hand as if it were a trifle and said, we don't need any help. But this is dad's funeral. I want to be a part of it, I said, confused. We just figured you were too busy we've already done everything. If you want to bring some paper and pencils and put them in the middle of the tables for people to write their memories at the reception, you can do that. Her voice had a tone of finality in it, as if to say, don't make this into something. So I purchased golf pencils, in honor of my dad's love of golfing, and put them on each table along with some note cards. That was the contribution I had permission to offer. On the day of his funeral, I took a Xanax and watched it all unfold like a dream. A dream in which I was not a participant, just a silent, invisible observer. When the funeral was over, my sister Alice invited immediate family over to their home, and her husband invited John and our older boys to go golfing in honor of my dad. Tom and I were not invited. I asked Marcy if she knew why, and I confessed to her that it hurt to be left out. Once again, she dismissed my thoughts, saying, It's no big deal. You don't have to make it something it isn't. The unspoken message was, Don't make waves. Walk away. So I did. But not without feeling all the feelings. Sadness, indignation, shame, fear. I allowed all of it. And Tom was there as a quiet witness. Yet, even now, as I try to write this chapter, a critical part of me whispers, You don't have to pout about it. It's been five years now. Do you really have to put something about it in your book? It was your dad's funeral for God's sake, but you must make everything in the universe about you all the time. Fine, whatever. Have it out. Be a ball baby. Get some violins going. Hope it makes you feel better. But I want to honor the part of me that went home that day and both raged and cried. I want her to say what she wants to say. And even if nobody else hears her, I do. I hold this sacred space for her. Go ahead, Natalie. Tell us about your dad. My dad was a quiet mountain. Emotions would sometimes rage around him, but he himself was immovable. He watched and listened and simply was. Perhaps he learned early on that this was the safest way to navigate an emotionally fragile and chaotic world. One of my earliest memories with him was walking through a gas station holding his hand. I noticed a man who looked older, like my dad, but he was my size. Fascinated, I pointed and said, Daddy, look at that little man over there! Dad glanced over to where I was pointing, then looked away and said nothing, but I felt his big hand slowly, gently, and powerfully squeezing my own, and somehow I knew I was to mind my own beeswax. That was how he corrected me. A look, a squeeze, quiet strength. My dad rarely raised his voice. He could get exasperated, such as when we giggled too much during family game night, or kept slurping the last of our chocolate malts through the straw, even though there was nothing left to slurp. That's enough, he would say sternly. As I recall, we might do one last slurp, but when it came to the giggling, we simply could not stop. And then he would say, game night was over, and that was that. I do remember one incident in one of our long car rides up to see all the grandparents in northern Minnesota. We were fighting in the back seat, and he got upset enough to pull the car over and spank us by the side of the road. I only remember it because I don't remember him ever doing that before or after. It was such a shocking anomaly. It must have been trying for him to live with three teen daughters who had PMS periodically. We would nitpick, argue, and fight, and he would just quietly be there, refusing to participate. While we would wake up crabby, he would wake up pleasant and patiently put up with our annoyed remarks. I felt guilty because he'd drive me early in the morning to my high school jazz group practice at school and ask me questions, making an attempt to get into my world. And I would answer shortly because I just wanted to be silent when I was feeling out of sorts and not quite ready to go into another school day. I used to worry that he would die and I'd be riddled with guilt for the rest of my life about how I squandered my time with him feeling annoyed. And now here we are. He is gone. I don't feel guilty. I was an angsty teenager, and having raised a few of them now myself, I get it. But I do feel profound sadness, and I would give anything to go back for one last car ride with him. But then again, if I had it, I would probably spend it weeping hysterically, begging him to stay, and it would not be a good experience for either of us. One of the most painful realities of a life on this planet is that nothing lasts. Every moment comes and then goes and is lost forever. Here it is, exquisitely marvelous and fragile, and you want to catch it and keep it forever. But even as you reach your hands out to touch it, it's gone. A mirage, never to be seen or experienced again. My dad used to often say with each passing season, It's the end of another era, and we would feel the weight of that grief. The miracle hiding in that truth is that even as one moment is making its exit, another one is making an entrance. Once we figure this out, we can revel in each now and let the warm sands slip through our fingers in delight, knowing that there is an infinite world of ocean and beach to experience. He always looked like a million bucks. He wore suits to work every day until he retired. He'd walk past me in the hall and I could smell his aftershave. I'd hear him kiss my mom before he left. It wasn't just a peck. It was a sweet and lingering kiss. Maybe a little too juicy for my liking as a teenager. I knew he loved my mom with an eternal love. Nothing she could do or say would stop that love from always being present and available for her. I hoped that one day I would be loved like that, and I think my dad hoped that for his daughters as well. The summer before he died, I met him at a coffee shop and told him about Tom. I was still in the middle of the divorce, which had dragged on and was now in its 15th month of going nowhere. My family did not look kindly on divorce and certainly not dating while getting divorced, but my dad didn't flinch. Maybe cancer had given him perspective. Maybe watching me suffer for so many years opened his mind up to other realities than the narrow belief that held so many in oppression and sorrow for their entire lives. Maybe he had learned that the women in his life were going to do whatever the hell they wanted to, whether he agreed with it or not. Whatever the reason, he expressed warmth and joy when he found out I was dating Tom and that it was serious he did ask somewhat apologetically, as if he was obligated to ask, but didn't really want to go there. Is he a Christian? I said, yes, he is a Catholic Christian. To this, he flinched almost imperceptibly. It was so subtle, I may have imagined it based on my knowledge of our family convictions and beliefs, such as the one about Catholics burning in hell. But he said nothing. And when he finally met Tom several months later at Christmas, after we were married, he welcomed him warmly. And Tom only remembers feeling loved, in spite of mom sitting him in the corner of the long table as far away from herself as possible. Dad always did have a way of smoothing things over. My dad came to every single concert, theater performance, and special event that involved his daughter's. Once he had acquired 18 grandchildren, he wasn't able to make it to every single event, but that was only because he could not be in two places at once. If he could, he would have. But sometimes the grandkids had to take turns. When he was there watching, the kids could feel it, and I'm pretty sure they played and sang and recited and acted better for it. Since his departure, I still find myself scanning the seats for his presence, And sometimes, I will spot the back of a head that looks like him, and my heart will both leap with hope and sink in pain in less than a second. Then I have to remind myself that he is here in my heart. Dad tried to teach me how to golf at one point, but I was hopelessly terrible as well as disinterested. I did love to drive the golf cart, though, so on occasion, when we could use my grandpa's cart, I would come along to be the caddy. I loved our summers up north. My mom's folks had a cabin on Big Cormorant Lake, and we would spend two weeks every summer hanging out with cousins and aunts and uncles, shooting off fireworks, smoking candy cigarettes, and swimming for endless hours in the LJ waters. Dad loved movies, and it became our little tradition to go to one, just the two of us, each summer. We saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, and the Twilight Zone movie, to name a few. He also loved food and treats, and he would take all of us to the Dairy Queen for ice cream cones while we were on vacation or after any big event. On the way home from the cabin, he would make one last vacation stop at Tasty's Pizza in Columbia Heights, where we had lived until I was seven. He would buy two large pepperoni pizzas and a pitcher of Pepsi. I remember watching his eyes as he looked longingly at the pizza while it quickly disappeared. I wanted the last piece, but he always seemed so sad when it was over, so we all let him have it, most of the time. We may have left that neighborhood behind when we moved, but we never left our love of Tasty's pizza behind. To this day, I still go back, periodically, to have the best pizza in the world. And to remember... When I was really young, Dad played on a city softball team with several of my extended relatives, which meant we got to play in different parks all over the Twin Cities with all of my cousins. I never wanted those moments to end. Dad got along with anyone and everyone. He was loved and respected at work, at church, and in our extended family. He was quiet, but he had a dry sense of humor and an impeccable sense of timing, He would listen to the conversation and then, at just the right moment, softly drop a hilarious little twist to whatever was being talked about. He wasn't the life of the party, but he was someone you definitely wanted at the party. You also definitely wanted his financial prowess. As a controller for a large commercial real estate company, as well as the church treasurer for many years, he was good with money. He saved and paid for all three of his daughters' big weddings, as well as most of their college. He never lied or said anything mean about anyone. You could trust him with everything, and we all did. He loved his grandkids. When I lost baby Elizabeth, he had a hard time getting over it. He cried. He wrote about it. He wanted to talk about it all the time. He had his heart set on doing all the things he had done with his little girls all over again with this first little granddaughter. At the time, his grief over a child he never knew seemed over the top and a bit odd. But looking back, I now believe he was grieving the loss of his own little girls and their childhoods, and losing Elizabeth gave him permission to fall into that sadness and grieve about all of it. Within a few years, he had numerous grandchildren, and he entered grandfatherhood with gusto. He generously rented cabins for us every summer so we could replicate with our own children the cabin memories we had grown up with. For one week out of the summer, he'd hang out with his grandkids, swimming, fishing, golfing, and pulling skiers and tubers over the lake waters while they screamed with glee. After he got cancer, Dad couldn't read books anymore because of his failing eyesight. Being a book lover myself, I could not imagine what a loss he must be feeling, so I introduced him to Audible and got him started with some books. He fell in love and ultimately listened to hundreds of them before he died. It made me happy that he didn't have to just lay there doing nothing. He could still get lost in historical biographies, mysteries, and crime dramas. About a week and a half before my dad died, he was in the hospital and I brought him his favorite chocolate-covered cherries from Abdallah's. He was so composed, so at peace. He was still so him. He said to me, I had a good life and I lived it to the fullest. I got to experience many memorable things, including watching my children and grandchildren grow up. I watched many eras come and go. And now... It is the end of my last era, and I'm ready to go. You keep going. You still have life to live and love. We will be together again someday. When I looked at the emaciated and discolored shell of my dad, I saw Creator God. And Creator in me connected with Creator in him, and there was a knowing. How do I know this? Because when I am aware of Creator in me, I am flooded with peace and love, and everything else disappears. I can see with Creator eyes, and things look very different. And that is what I saw and felt when he said those words to me. Nobody else has to believe me or believe that, but I do. I gave him one last chocolate covered cherry and a hug, and then walked to my car, struggling to see the sidewalk in front of me through the tears. And I knew I had just experienced the end of an era. Goodbye, Dad. I love you. Have you ever asked any of these important questions? Why does my marriage hurt so bad, no matter how hard I try to make it better? Who am I anymore? And why do I have so much loneliness and self-hatred inside? What can I do to move forward in my life when I have felt stuck for so long? And where is God in the mess? I've been praying for years, and I don't think He's listening anymore. If you're a Christian woman in a confusing and painful marriage who feels like you're spinning your wheels, looping on the same problems week after week, I'd like to help you change that. Six years ago, I developed a program that has helped thousands of Christian women wake up to their reality and live powerfully within it as the adult women God created them to be. The Flying Free program uses transformational coaching, workshops, classes, and a close-knit community of women to support you on your journey. I'm gonna help you find answers to all of those questions Answers that make sense and align with your core values so that you can move forward. In 2023, I'll be reteaching all of my classes to reflect the ongoing training, education, and experience I've had working with thousands of survivors over the past six years. So it is a great time to join us. You can get all the details, including reviews, facts, and everything that comes with the program by going to joinflyingfree.com and I'll see you on the inside. Chapter 11. Tsunami. Faith was about love all along. We just didn't realize it, and it took doubt to help us see it. Brian McLaren, Faith After Doubt. Some people come into your life out of nowhere Yet, their comfortable familiarity feels as if they have always been there. That is how I felt when an amazing young man came into my daughter's life. In a world of little kings throwing fits about who is better than whom, this boy was an angel. I admit, I wasn't quite sure he fit into our family. We were still shattered and awkwardly limping toward healing, and he entered our recovery space smiling and full of life and love. But he came from a herding family as well, a missing father and a surviving mother. I suspected my family might not recognize just what a treasure he was, not at the beginning, but as he spent time with us on vacation and holidays, he became a trusted brother and friend to them, and he became a son to me. In the summer of 2020, he dropped by to visit me with flowers, and on our warm, sunny deck He asked for my daughter's hand in marriage. She didn't know it was going to be a surprise. I was ecstatic. This young man was really and truly going to be my son. Somehow, I had always known his destiny belonged in our family's future bloodline. I offered him the wedding ring from my former marriage so he could use the diamonds to make a new ring. We took pictures to commemorate this moment, and I floated on air the rest of the day. I did not yet see the tsunami on the far horizon. My daughter was a camp counselor that summer for a few weeks, but she would be returning in time for our upcoming cabin vacation. The adult kids were all joining us that year, and I happily planned the activities for our time together. We would make memories horseback riding, biking, boating, and swimming. Also eating. And then she called. She wasn't coming home. She wanted to stay at camp. She met someone there, and she was questioning her relationship with her boyfriend. If it were a forever relationship, why was she pulled in by this other person? She didn't know. She was in knots, crying and unsure of what to do, but one thing she did know, she did not believe it was fair to let this boy believe she was all in when clearly her heart had been distracted by someone else. She wasn't even sure that someone else was worth pursuing long-term, but just the fact that she was drawn in a new direction left her confused and miserable. She was only going to come back for the weekend, in between camp sessions, long enough to break the news to him in person. It was only fair, but the day of her return was also the Saturday we were leaving for the cabin. I completely fell apart. All I could imagine was this exquisite soul on a serene beach, innocently and joyfully enjoying the beauty all around him, anticipating a future of promise, but in the distance I could see the leviathan looming with hunger. He would not see it until it was upon him, picking him up, consuming him, and spitting him out as if he were of no more consequence than the rocks and crabs and sand around him. And that would be the end of the loveliest young man I had now come to think of as my own son. I could hardly sleep the next two nights and cried off and on as I miserably packed up suitcases, grocery bags, and dreams. At one point, a desperate thought momentarily flicked at the edge of my brain. Perhaps he might take one of my younger daughters? But of course, he was only meant for one. He would never come with us now he would never be part of our family. He would leave my world forever, and I knew I would grieve his loss as if he had died. The tsunami slammed into his world that Saturday and did everything I knew it would. I allowed myself to enter fully into the grief of it. When the tears came, I succumbed to their force. On the second day of the vacation, I injured my back while horseback riding and could not walk for several days. I laid in the cabin, writhing in agony of heart, soul, and body, and I had no energy to fight or resist it. I was undone. Toward the end of the week, when I could slowly and gingerly walk a few paces, I hobbled outside to sit on a tree stump where there was a satellite connection and I could talk to him on my phone. He was as shredded and raw with pain as I imagined he would be. I could hear the bitter questions pounding on his heart. Where was God in all of this? Why was this happening? It made no sense. I had no answers. Some things cannot be explained, only endured. I was relieved when the week was over and we returned to a hollow normal. My daughter came back from camp, but she was not herself. A few days later, the boy she had met at camp drove over three hours to see her at our home. When he arrived, my daughter walked him into the kitchen to meet me. He offered a vague smile and a limp handshake, which I took vaguely and limply. I asked him if he wanted anything to drink. I don't know, he replied with an utter absence of personality. Annoyed, I responded, well, if you decide you would like something later, let me know and I abruptly turned away, disgusted with him, and disappointed in my own failure to like him. He didn't have a chance in the world with me. My daughter brought him upstairs to her room, and 20 minutes later they came back down, and he quietly went out the front door without saying goodbye. She came in the kitchen sobbing. I sent him away. I don't like him. I've made a horrible mistake. I don't know what I was thinking, and now I've lost the man I love. What have I done? What had she done indeed? I hugged her, but there was nothing to be done for it. Tsunamis like this leave no survivors. But love. We didn't account for love. How could we? What had we seen of love so far? We had only known a love conditioned on our perfection and pleasing those around us. Even in the home and church, places where love should have thrived and nourished and led by example, we had only encountered love's imposter. But the extraordinary young man who loved my daughter was tapped into something most people can't see and therefore don't believe. After the tsunami had triumphantly spent its rage and left him for dead, this boy slowly got to his feet and made his way back over to the girl. He wisely understood something. She had been swallowed up by the same powerful waters that had tried to destroy him. He bent over her, and with a heart full of love and forgiveness, he brushed the sand and seaweed off, turned her over, and kissed her. She woke up, and one year later they said, I do, at the bottom of a bright ski slope in July love. Tsunamis don't stand a chance in the face of the real thing. Hey, beautiful butterfly. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and then consider leaving a rating and review so others can find us. To connect with me and get a free chapter of my book, head over to flyingfreenow.com. And until next time, fly free.